Let me ask you now to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. As my pastor used to tell me, go to 1 Peter and take a right. That's how you find 2 Peter. <laughs> Somebody's listening for heaven's sakes. Um, and today we're going to talk about the gospel gap. We're talking about uh, the biblical foundations for change. How do we as the people of God experience not just surface external skin deep change, but transformation of the heart? the steering wheel of our lives. How do we, how can we change? Where do we get the power to change? These are the kinds of questions we're considering. And we believe that the source for change is a depth understanding of the gospel. For many of us, perhaps, we've been playing in the shallow end of the pool for a lot of years, and it's time to get to the deep end and learn to understand, and we will never this side of glory fully understand and grasp the power, the beauty, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I often have to remind ourselves that the gospel is not simply the entry gate into the Christian life, that we believe upon conversion and then, okay, we got it. No. The gospel is the pathway we walk throughout all of our life on this earth. And so today we're going to talk about how or what the gospel gap is. I think our points are we want to understand it. We want to understand ways in which we might try to fill that gap. And finally, we're going to talk about what should fill the gap. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the Holy Spirit would empower both the one who delivers God's word and, and the ones who hear God's word. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. 
And so we pray today that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, to see the beauty and glory of the truth and that we may lay aside everything that hinders us from walking with you in greater and greater intimacy. And this we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. And so today we're talking about the gospel gap, and we're talking about trying to understand uh, the gospel gap. And often there is a vast gap in our understanding of the present work of God in our souls. This gap undermines every relationship in our lives, every decision we make, and every attempt to minister to others. Yet we live blindly, as it were, as if the hole in our relationship with the Lord is not really there. And so it's important to understand that there's this gap. There is this, whoa. Let me scoot it over here and then maybe it won't ever do that again. It's not fun. But there is a gap. There's this hole uh, in our relationship, and some of us walk around with what I call gap denial. But we need to wake up. Second uh, Peter here describes the gap probably better than any other passage I'm aware of. And so as we've read this passage, I want to call to your attention in particular uh, verses 8 and 9. For if you possess these qualities, that is the ones he has listed, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. And so the question immediately uh, comes to view here Peter gives us the symptoms of what I am calling the gospel gap. Peter points out that there are people who do know the Lord. They know their Lord, but whose lives fail to produce the expected fruit of faith. Their lives are not characterized by peaceful and loving relationships, a sweet and natural day-by-day -day worship of the Lord, and a wholesome and balanced relationship to material things and ongoing spiritual growth and maturity. Instead, these believers leave a trail of broken relationships, a knowledgeable but impersonal walk with God, and uh, ongoing uh, a struggle with material things and a definite lack of personal growth. Something is wrong when this is the case. And it contradicts the faith that is supposed to be its source. Because as Martin Luther once, once said, faith is a living, active, daring, dynamic thing. If you have genuine faith, that faith is productive. And that's what Peter is saying. I look out over the, the church, the body of Christ, and I see people who are growing, people who are maturing, people who are getting better at, for lack of a better way to say it, relationships, people who are more grounded and solid and are not flitting about uh, like a butterfly. And so the question then becomes, 
Why are many Christians ineffective and unproductive? And Peter gives us the diagnosis in verse 9. They are nearsighted and blind, having forgotten that they have been cleansed from their past sins, and they are blind to the power and hope of the gospel for today. For today, now. And so the good news of Jesus Christ has a past dimension and a future dimension, but it also has a present dimension. And so first there is the, the dimension of the past. When I embrace Jesus Christ by faith, the scriptures tell me that my sins are completely forgiven and I stand before God as righteous as Jesus is because I have been given his righteousness. He has imputed to me his own record of righteousness. There is also the future aspect of the gospel that promises an eternity with the Lord. Free of sin, free of struggle. It's hard to even envision that and, and grasp that and wrap our minds around that. And the church has done fairly well in explaining the past benefits of the gospel of Christ and anticipating the future benefits of the gospel of Christ, but not so well as the present benefits of the gospel of Christ. There is a gap here, and that gap keeps us from being fruitful. Now, how the question then becomes, what difference does the gospel make in what I like to call not the hereafter, but in the nasty now and now? What difference does the gospel make? How does it help me as a father? How does it help me as a husband or a worker or a member of the body of Christ? How does it help me respond in difficulty? How does the gospel help me make decisions? How does it give me meaning, purpose, power, and identity? How does it motivate me to get out of myself and minister to other people? So it is in the here and now that many of us experience what Peter here calls a gospel blindness. Our sight is dim. Um, the word for nearsighted uh, in Peter here, in Second Peter, means to squint your eyes. It's like people like me who wear reader glasses and probably need to graduate to real ones. But I, I can remember when I used to read my Bible and I kept having to hold it, get more and more light, and my arms weren't long enough so I couldn't read anymore. And so I had to get something to help me see. Why? Because I, I was experiencing uh, sight loss. And, and so the remarkable thing about being a Christian is that the more we grow in Christ, the greater the enlightenment comes by the work of the Word and the Spirit in our hearts. But he's saying here that these people have their sight dimmed and maybe it's by the tyranny of that which is urgent or maybe it's the siren call of success or maybe it's the seductive beauty of physical things uh, by our inability to admit our own problems and by casual relationships in the body of Christ which are don't get too close to me arm's length I don't want you to know me I don't want you to be in my business I don't want you to be in my face I don't want you to be in my stuff and so this blindness is often encouraged by preaching that fails to take the gospel to the specific challenges we all face. People need to see that the gospel belongs in our workplaces. 
in our kitchens, in our schools, in our bedrooms, in our backyard, and even in the SUV as we travel around. We need to see the way the gospel makes a connection between what they are doing and what God is doing. And we need to understand that our life stories are being lived out within God's larger story so that we can learn to live, live each day with a gospel mentality. I call it a gospel paradigm that you are so thoroughly grasped by the gospel and that you understand it and it begins to trickle down to every dimension of your experience. The gospel then becomes a lens, an interpretive grid through which you understand all of life. And we'll talk about that more as we talk about this. But there is something called the gospel gap. And the gap goes a little bit like this. There are three kinds of blindness that I want to talk about in the here and now whole, in the middle of our lives, uh, the gospel gap. First, there's the blindness of identity. Think about that word identity. Many people who believe in Jesus Christ do not have a gospel perspective of who they are. For example, you can be a really good theologian, but if your personal identity is rooted more in your knowledge and achievement than it is in the gospel, then this lack of gospel identity shows up in two ways. First, many Christians underestimate the presence and power of indwelling sin. They don't see how easily entrapped we can be in a world full of enemies and snares. And so they don't grasp the comprehensive nature of the war that we're always raging within our hearts as Romans 7 depicts for us so clearly. We're not aware how prone we are to run after God replacements. And so we fail to see our greatest problem exists within us, not outside of us. If there's one thing that I can help you understand this gap I'm talking about, it is to understand, and this is hard, this is difficult, your greatest problems are not outside of you, they're inside of you. At least that's how the Bible sees it and speaks to the issue. And so many believers fail to see the other side of their gospel identity, who they are in Christ. Jesus doesn't only give me forgiveness and a new future, but he gives me a whole new identity. Uh, I am a child of God with all the rights and privileges that these titles bestow. Uh, the important uh, this is important because each one of us lives out of some sense of identity. And our gospel identity uh, is important for that reason. Um, if we have what I call gospel identity amnesia, uh, we will always look for some form of identity replacement. That is, who I, if who I am in Christ does not shape the way I think about myself and the things I face, then I will try to live out some other kind of identity. The gospel and what it says about who I am no longer determines who I am, and something else becomes a substitute for determining who I am. So often in our, pro uh, in our blindness, our problems become our identities. Let me say that again. We take on our problems as our identity. 
could be substance abuse. It could be divorce. It could be depression or being a single parent or other human experiences. But they're not identities. They're not who we really are. Our work is not our identity, though it's important. And God intends us to be uh, flourishing and to work. But for too many of us, our sense of identity is rooted more in our performance than it is in God's grace. And it's wonderful to be successful at what God has called us to do. But when you use your success or failure to define who you are, you will always have a distorted uh, perspective. The second element of blindness is the gospel has called us to live out of God's provision. As Peter says, in Christ, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. Why does he use two words here, both life and godliness? Well, the second word, this is how it works in the Greek, is meant to qualify the first word. If Peter had simply said that God has given us everything we need for life, it would be easy to stick the word eternal before that. But this is how the passage is often interpreted. But we find it much easier to embrace the gospel's promise of life after death than we do its promise of life before death. But when Peter says that God has given us everything we need for godliness, we know that he's talking about life right now. And godliness simply means a God-honoring life from the time I come to Christ until the time I go home with him. Peter is saying that we cannot live properly in the present unless we understand how God has provided for us. Many believers are blind to the fact that this provision runs deeper than the commands and principles and promises of Scripture we normally associate with the pursuit of a godly life. It's even more fundamental than the conviction of the Holy Spirit or even our legal forgiveness. God's provision for a, 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 a godly life now is literally Christ himself who dwells in me. Christ dwells in me by his spirit. That is the greatest provision I could ever have. And so we turn to everything else in our world to try to live a life pleasing to God rather than recognizing we have at our, as our resource Christ himself dwelling in us. And so the indwelling Christ is something that we're often blind to. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I no longer live but Christ lives in me. Jesus is not Emmanuel, or is Emmanuel, not only because he came to earth and lived with us, but because he actually lives with us now by his Spirit. And his presence gives us everything we need to be who we're supposed to be and to do what God has called us to do. And without an awareness of Christ's presence, we live completely consumed, as it were, by anxiety. We avoid hard things and are easily overwhelmed, but a clear sense of who we are in Christ and the provision we have in him gives us hope and courage and stability to face the struggles and temptations that come our way. And the third blindness that I want to mention uh, that a gospel gap produces is blindness to God's process in our life. 
The New Testament is clear that our acceptance into the family of God is not the end of our Christian life or God's work in us, but the very beginning of God's work in us. God has not called us to a life of, I have spiritually arrived, or I'm just waiting for heaven. Rather, he calls us to a life of constant work, constant growth, constant confession, constant repentance. Making us holy is God's unwavering, relentless agenda until we are taken home to be with him. He will do whatever he needs to do to produce holiness in us, and he wants us to be a community living in joy but is willing to compromise our temporal happiness in order to increase our likeness to his son, Jesus Christ. And when we find ourselves in difficulty or trial, it's easy to think that God has forgotten us or maybe he's rejected us. This is because we do not understand the process. God is not working for our comfort and ease. He's working for our growth. At the very moment we're tempted to question his faithfulness, he is fulfilling promises he has made to us. And so God is always at work to complete this process. Well, that leads me to the second question in the outline. What fills this gap or this hole in our soul? And so all of us are pretty much the same, I think. Uh, we know that a hole anywhere doesn't stay empty for long, especially if it's in your house. Some of us have a closet, and that closet is so full that when we open the door, everything falls out on us, and we have no idea what's in there because we put stuff in there, you know, when somebody's coming over, grab it, we put it in the closet. <laughs> or a garage bay. You may have stuff in your garage bay. You don't even know what's in there, but it's there. Why? Because a vac uh, nature abhors a vacuum. And so if we're not living out of the gospel, guess what? We're going to live out of something else. We are creatures who are always looking for life, always looking for power, spiritual power. And so I want to talk about some of the ways that we miss the gospel. Uh, some of us are like I was. We're, we're blind about this. We don't understand this. We have an intellectual grasp of the gospel. If I were to ask you a series of questions about the doctrine of salvation and how a person comes to faith in Christ and what it means to be born again and what justification is and what forgiveness is and all of that, you could pass the test in flying colors, but you don't get it. You don't see it yet. You don't understand the gospel yet. I was a pastor for several years. I sure wish I had understood the gospel a lot sooner than I did. Now, I don't know why God waited so long to show me the deeper implications of the gospel in my life. I, I was theologic. I was, it reverts back to a little game that I have played before called the magic eye. How many of you know what the magic eye is? Am I going to have to tell you what it is? Have you ever seen those pictures and there's a picture in the picture and it's not obvious to you when you look at the picture it just looks like a bunch of jumbled stuff and it's all colorful but somehow if you can squint your eyes just right get it in just the right light bend it over and look up from the bottom <laughs> you can see this picture within a picture guess what I have never seen the picture I can even go and look at the picture that's supposed to be in the picture and I still can't see it. 
And I remember once doing this with another couple, and uh, they just enjoyed it way too much that I couldn't <laughs> see it. Uh, as far as even mocking me with my inability to see. And that's how some of us are about the gospel. We just don't see it yet. We don't see it as core or central or the power of God until salvation, past, present, and future. And so we have a gospel blindness, like I have a magic eye blindness. And there's that moment when we can see. But what do we do in that case? Uh, the gospel gap in our lives doesn't stay empty. If we do not live with a gospel-shaped, Christ-confident, and change-committed Christianity, that hole in us will get filled with other stuff. These things may seem plausible and even biblical, but they will be missing the identity, provision, process, core that is meant to fill every one of us as a believer. Uh, Paul uses a term for these counterfeits in 2 Corinthians 10. He calls them pretensions. Not every lie is a pretense. A pretense is a plausible lie. I could tell you that I identify as a female Olympic gymnast, but that would be a lie. I, I'm not a female uh, Olympic gymnast. But it would not be pretense because it would lack plausibility. But if I dressed in a suit and I stood in front of you and I'm doing what I'm doing, I could probably fool you into thinking I'm a pastor. So that's the difference. These things are pretenses. The most dangerous pretensions are those that masquerade as true Christianity, but they're missing the core gospel identity, the gospel power, and the gospel provision of Christ himself. They have roots in the truth, but they're incomplete. And what characterizes most of them is their external, their mere externalism. Whenever we're missing the message of Christ indwelling work to progressively transform us, that hole will be filled by a Christian lifestyle that focuses more on externals than it does the heart. I believe that a war for the heart of Christianity is raging all around us, seeking to draw us away from its true core toward external. So what are some of the externals we get sucked up into or that fill the hole in our gospel understanding. They're all things that are a part of the normal Christian life and each sort of attracts us at different times in different ways, but it's possible we have a gap in our gospel and that we've been filling it in ways we didn't realize. The first one I would call... Um, Formalism. These are external things that we turn to because we're always looking for a functional Savior. We're always looking for a functional Savior. Let me say it again. We're always looking for a functional Savior. And so the first one of these would be formalism. And this is a person who goes through the motions, sort of lives above the fray, and, you know, beauty is skin deep, ugly goes all the way to the bone. These people are ugly all the way to the bone. Because they've externalized Christianity. Uh, these people come to church regularly. Uh, they may even serve as a Sunday school teacher. They may be faithful in giving. They volunteer. But all of that has very little impact on their hearts and how they live their lives. 
God railed against the formalism of the Israelites. Don't come to me with all your sacrifices. To obey is better than sacrifice. God doesn't look on the outward things. God looks on the heart. Christ condemned the formalism of the Pharisees. Why? Because formalism, listen carefully, allows me to retain control of my life, my time, my agenda. Formalism is blind to the seriousness of my spiritual condition and my constant need for the mercy of God to rescue me. You see, if you simply see church participation as one aspect of a good life, but you don't have any hunger for the Lord himself, you have no hunger for God's help in any other area, for a person like that, the gospel is reduced to participation in the meetings and ministries of the church, but nothing ever happens to the heart. It's all external. You, you just don't see this person in deep tears of repentance. You don't see in this person a brokenness. It is as if this person lives above the fray. The second gospel hole or a gospel gap, is something called legalism. We've talked a lot about that around here. But some people are a walking list of do's and don'ts. They have a set of rules for every single thing in their life. And they are usually their way of evaluating themselves and everybody else around them. Their children live under the crushing weight of their legalism. To them, God is a harsh judge who places unreasonable standards on them and then condemns them when they can't live up or keep them. And so there's no joy in the home because there's no grace to be celebrated. And so there's no appreciation. If you think performing a list gets you in good standing with God, you have no appreciation for the grace given. What do you need Jesus for if you can do it yourself? So legalism completely misses the fact that there's not one person that can ever satisfy God's requirements except Jesus. And when we rigidly keep our rules, our pride, our impatience, our judgmental spirit are never touched. You find yourself judging other people? It's kind of fun sometimes, isn't it? Kind of fun to judge because it makes you feel good. You know, you get this rising, well, at least... I'm not like them. I know my child may be rebellious, but at least she's not like their daughter. You know, and you, you get this judgmental, heavy judgmental. And, and after a while, uh, nobody loves you but your mother, and she could be jiving too. That, that's legalism. That's what legalism is. And it, it, often Christians fall into this because they haven't truly learned the depth of their inability to earn God's favor. They forget the need for our hearts to be transformed by God's grace. Legalism isn't just a reduction of the gospel. It is another gospel altogether. And it's not a gospel. It's not good news. It's bad news where salvation and status with God is earned by keeping the rules we have established. As a friend of mine says, you find in church a lot of Pharisees with very low standards. <laughs> A lot of elder brothers. A third one is what I call mysticism. 
And mysticism is another way. If, you don't, if you're not drawn on the gospel, you're not living out of its resources, it's not the core of who you are and what you're doing, something else is going to fill the void. And so mysticism becomes really popular over the centuries because it careens from emotional experience to emotional experience. We're constantly hunting for a spiritual high, a daily encounter with God. And because of this, some people never stay in any one church very long. Why is that? They're more a consumer of experience than they are a committed member of the body of Christ. Yet in between the dynamic experiences, uh, faith often falls flat. There's a struggle with discouragement and wondering if I'm even a believer because I don't have that emotional high. It's like crack for heaven's sakes. Uh, I know that when I was a young Christian, man, I was running from, I, I, I went to so many services and different church. I was running and looking to keep myself on this spiritual high. I, I equivocated it to having gas in the engine. You can have a beautiful car, but if it's gas operated and you got no gas in the tank, you're not going anywhere. And so, but it was driving me, it was consuming me to have experience and despite the excitement of powerful moments spiritual experiences does not necessarily equivocate growing in faith and character biblical faith is not stoic true christianity is certainly dyed with all of the colors of human emotion but you cannot reduce the gospel to dynamic emotional experiences with god as the holy spirit indwells us and the word of god impacts us most of the changes in our hearts and lives take place in the little mundane moments of life the danger of mysticism is that it can become more a pursuit of experience than it is a pursuit of Christ. Let me repeat that. The danger of mysticism is that it can become more a pursuit of experience than it is a pursuit of Christ himself. It reduces the gospel, all of these are reductionistic, it reduces the gospel to the dynamic emotional and spiritual experiences. And I love dynamic and emotional uh, spiritual experiences. I love that. I mean, I do. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're being changed. The next one is activism. Activism. There are Christians who really believe that uh, unless you are actively fighting the darkness in our culture, you are somehow substandard uh, to being a real Christian. Uh, There are people who protest Pornographic sites and pornographic bookstores uh, work on coming political uh, uh, elections, uh, picket and protest abortion, which is, you know, these things are fine, but they're not the core. They devote time and energy and money to stand up for what's right. And yeah, that's noble, but on closer examination, sometimes this person's Christianity is more a defense of what is right than a joyful pursuit of Jesus. And we can fall into that trap. And the focus of this kind of Christian activism is always on external evil. It's very moralistic. 
And as a result, it can take the form of sort of a modern monasticism. Uh, the monastics essentially said there's evil in the world out there. There's a lot of evil, and the way to fight evil is to separate from it. But monasteries failed because they forgot to focus on the evil inside every monk who entered their walls. One of the dangers of externalizing evil and making it an enemy is you're blind to the fact of the evil inside of us. Somebody once said, I could never live in Las Vegas. And I said, well, I get that. I mean, it's not an easy place to live, especially as a Christian. I couldn't live in. I saw you're like Jonah. If God told you to go to Vegas, you would go in the opposite direction. You would go to Charlotte, North Carolina, right? Because you ain't going to Vegas. Why? And he said, well, I was out there on a business trip. Always a business trip That's what they tell you. That's what they tell. And said, so I got so depressed. And all these posters and all these signs and all this stuff. And so I was feeling a little frisky that day. And I said to this person, there is nothing on any billboard in Las Vegas, Nevada, that is not also resident in your heart. There's nothing. It's external. It's easy for you to say I'm better than that. But if you know your own heart, you know why people fall into that. You understand that. You see it. Because the gospel is the only thing that will give you a true, the, the existential courage, the spiritual um, chutzpah to really look at your heart. Once your confidence that God has accepted you completely in Jesus Christ, that he sees you as righteous as Jesus is. That you are the apple of his eye. That he rejoices over you with singing. That he loves you. And that he knows you're a sinner through and through. Then you can look. You have the existential courage to see how you really are. But if you don't, you're going to fight it outside of it. It's all going to be external. And that's what a Pharisee is. And that's what I am recovering from. And so activism, activism, you know, you got to be involved, and it's a good thing. But what, when you believe that the evil outside of you is greater than the evil inside of you, a heartfelt pursuit of Christ will be replaced by a zealous fighting of the evil around you. A celebration of grace that rescues you from your own sin will be replaced by a crusade to rescue the church from the ills of the surrounding culture. Christian maturity becomes defined as an willingness to defend right from wrong. The gospel is reduced to participation in Christian causes. I hope you don't misunderstand me in that. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing any of that as long as your focus is on the gospel and as long as you know the evil attacking, you're attacking outside of you is resident within you. Otherwise, you'll have no humility. Now, the next one is what I call theologism. <laughs> Somebody is a biblical theological expert. Their theological library includes rare antique Christian volumes and they're always buying them and seeking to buy first editions and they use phrases like superlapsarian or infralapsarian or biblical worldview or theologically consistent or paradigm you know all those kind of things but despite their ded dedicated study of Christianity which is a good thing but they're not like Christ 
They're not at all like Christ. They have a reputation for being proud, critical, intolerant of anyone who lacks his fine-grained understanding of the truth. I used to have a little black-and-white television. Can you believe I'm saying that? How old are you? I had a black-and-white television in my dorm, and I lived in Jackson, Mississippi, and I was totally out of reach of any decent television. I could get one channel. And I was something of a TV addict, especially on Monday Night Football. I had to see it. And that channel carried it. But you should see the machinations I did to fine-tune. I had to have guys stand at the door, hold the aerial with some aluminum foil on it. And it, it couldn't be windy or cloudy. It had to be clear. And we'd venture, and I'd be tuning to finally I'd get a picture. Stop! Right there. He said, I can't hold it anymore. Some of us, with our theology like to fine-tune everybody out of the picture but us. I call it theological frisking. You pull people over and you frisk them for their theological knowledge. Now, nobody loves theology in this room more than I do. I've spent my life studying theology, but that doesn't necessarily make me like Jesus. And it can, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge that is not grounded in the gospel puffs up. And so we have people in churches who endlessly critique the pastor's sermons or loves to unnerve a Sunday school teacher when they come in the room. They love to one-up everybody. Uh, theological correctness is their righteousness. But in that person's Christianity, communion dependency and the worship of Christ have been replaced by a drive to master the content of scripture as well as systematic theology. So a theological expert they may be but they're unable to live by the grace that he can define with such technical precision. A person like this has invested a great deal of time and energy mastering word and theology but it doesn't allow the word to master him. It's called biblicism or theologism. The gospel is reduced to a mastery of biblical content in theology. I was telling the session the other night that theology is a wonderful place to hide. You can hide from the real world in theology. I know. I have hidden there. It's a great place. feels so right. feels so good. But divorce from the gospel, it'll dry you up. It will harden your heart. One of the complaints of my classmates in school, you know, here we are every day, every day, five days a week, every day being exposed to truth. I couldn't even begin to quantify or tell you what it was like. Constant truth. But because of our lack of understanding as young men going to seminary, it tended to harden us. And you know, a lot of guys I went to seminary with wouldn't even go to church on Sunday. What do I need to go to church for? I've been hearing it all week. <laughs> I said, well, i got to go. I'm preaching. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you say, well, that's terrible. That's awful. Yes, it is. And we didn't know it. You get that theological swagger, you're in trouble. Uh, the next one would be what I call being a therapy junkie or psychologism. You know, some people really are attracted to hurting people 
and they're avid readers of self-help books, even Christian self-help books. And they're always recommending the latest one to somebody else. And they often say that Christianity is the only place to find real help and healing, yet they don't seem to find it there for themselves. They spend much of their time discouraged, and they leave church meetings in tears. But the truth is, our deepest needs are met in Christ. But people like this see Christ more as a therapist than they do as a savior. People are convinced that their deepest needs come out of their experiences of neglect and rejection, so they see themselves more in need of healing than redemption. But they are blind to how demanding and critical and self-absorbed they can actually be. You ever been that person? I'm pretty sure I have. See, when I'm looking at all of these, I have done them. Trying to fill the hole in my soul. But without realizing it, a person who's what I would call sort of a therapy junkie has redefined the problem that the gospel addresses. Rather than seeing our problem as moral and relational, the result of our willingness to worship and serve ourselves and the things of this world instead of worshiping and serving our creator, they see our problem as a whole catalog of just unmet felt needs. But whenever you view the sin of another against you as greater than the problem of your own sin, you are dangerously on the precipice of victimology. And you tend to seek Christ as your therapist more than you seek him as your savior. So Christianity becomes more a pursuit of healing than a pursuit of godliness. Well, I got ten more, but I won't go there, okay? That's enough. I already feel bad. <laughs> Now, why are these replacements so attractive? They're plausible. Why? Because the Bible tells us that all of these things are things we should participate in. They're plausible. But none of them can carry the freight of the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that is the power of God unto salvation. And so we, we, we run around trying to <laughs> help God out. And uh, we, we, we fail to see, listen, if you're not the worst sinner you know, and if you don't need the gospel more than anyone else you know, you don't even have a really good start yet. My estimation of who I am apart from Christ is at an all-time low. Why? I mean, am I, am I one of those morbid Augustinians who loves to, you know, wear hair shirts and crawl across broken glass and take a whip and beat myself? No. I'm just a regular Christian who's began to see, I need a Savior. I need somebody to save me from me. <laughs> save me from me. Now, you've been really slow at listening today, and there's always next Sunday, isn't it? We'll talk more about this next Sunday because I want to talk about what shall, what should fill the gap, but I'll give you a brief preview of that and we'll be done. It's amazing how long it took me to really understand the gospel. Like many Christians, I understood early on that my sin had been forgiven, that's past grace, that I was going to spend eternity with Christ, that's future grace, but I did not grasp 
the depth of my need for the benefits of the work of Christ now. That's present grace. My externalistic Christianity needed to be infused with the present power of the gospel. We have to learn, we have to learn to continually preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to learn that. Or we will see no substantial, significant change in who we are. There are things in my life that are no longer there, and the only reason I can tell you that they're no longer troublesome to me is the gospel took them away. Jesus took them away. He took them away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you love us in spite of our externalism and our turning our blindness to the gospel, we just don't see it yet. And our turning uh, our battles and our life to other means uh, really sets us back. And uh, we don't become like Jesus because we've left the first things. You've told us, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so go on walking in him rooted and grounded in the faith. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give today as people who have our identity rooted in Jesus, and because of that, we love to give to him. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.